Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm John Gonzalez. We're here with True FM Online Music Talk and News. Jack, where do we fit into that? Well, we fit into it by virtue of the fact that you and I are lawyers with the B Hall Law Group. By the way, you can find the B Hall Law Group on B Hall Law on the web. And for our listeners, we provide a variety of legal services ranging from business matters to trial work and family law matters. And I think today we wanted to talk about the nuts and bolts of a real estate uh, purchase. Well, that's right. But, you know, don't get ahead of yourself there, John. We have to say that thing first before we talk about buying a house. Yeah. We provide podcast as a service to the community. While we try to provide quality information, we're not giving legal advice you can rely upon on your situation. Why is that, you ask? Because legal advice has to be tailored to the circumstances of each case. Nothing we say in a podcast can substitute for the advice you should seek from an attorney in a private meeting if you have a legal problem. Do you think that people need a lawyer or can they rely upon a real estate agent? Uh, at the risk of cutting off business for our firm, I think if each side is represented by a sales agent and they use the standard form, which is used almost exclusively in central Ohio and produced jointly by the Columbus Realtors and the Columbus Bar Association, the need for a lawyer goes down. Where the need comes about is when there are problems with title issues, that is, encumbrances on the property, or when there's some pretty significant negotiation that deals with making improvements to the house as a condition of closing the loan. And as a consequence of that, there has to be some pretty specific writing uh, that is drafting of an addendum. So when you get into that type of specifics, then, you know, you need a lawyer. Most of the real estate agents uh, understand the form contract that the Bar Association and the Board of Realtors use. And uh, my experience is like yours. When I get called, it's either because that contract is not being followed by one of the two sides uh, or there's some extraordinary event. Uh, maybe there's a fire or a loss during the contract period or uh, somebody found a um, you know, termites and wants to know what their rights might be. But I agree with you. I think for the most part, these transactions can go forward uh, without an attorney unless something else comes up. Uh, I would caution uh, anybody that's buying a home, though, if they feel like they're getting legal advice from their real estate agent, they should probably see if, um, if they can talk to a lawyer about it. Yeah, I agree. And, and the one thing that's kind of interesting about real estate agents and matter of selling houses is that real estate agents are dealing with legal aspects or legal issues all the time, but regrettably, they're not really trained in it. So when those kind of questions come up, it's really not prudent to be relying on the real estate agent. Remember, those folks have one primary mission, and that mission is to move property. They're salespeople. When you have a legal issue, well, now you need to turn to a different type of professional. And I think one of the biggest benefits of a real estate agent, if we could give them, uh, our friends in that industry, a plug, is that they know where the inventory is. If you're looking for a home, they are plugged into the most uh, updated and accurate information on what's available, and they can get your house, if you're listing it for sale, into that database. Not only that, but they know price, right? They should be experts at being able to render an opinion as to the starting point for the bidding process for your house. 
One of the first things that you'll do when you're buying a home under the real estate contract is uh, present the seller with a pre-approval letter. Right. And again, tell what's your understanding of that, the significance of the pre-approval letter. That's the ballpark figure. That's the lender saying, we think you're going to qualify for a loan up to this amount. That just gets the, the ball rolling. But that's not the final decision, understand. But it gives the buyer a um, reasonable understanding of how much home can be afforded. And then when the buyer enters into a real estate contract, it gives the seller some level of confidence, right, that this buyer has at least got to that step on the pre-approval process. And I guess we're presuming here that the buyer is going to finance a house, correct? I haven't met anybody who bought a house with just cash. And I sure as heck would like that person to come into our office because he'd be a great client, I bet. One of the things that um, buyers will find out when they go to finance a purchase of a house is they have to have so much money down and then they have to buy PMI insurance. Maybe you can explain what that is. The standard loan is based on 20% down. Bankers love that because that provides them a significant cushion in the event that I hate to talk about it, the house is foreclosed upon. So if you are buying with less than 20% down, and I don't know exactly where it starts, but at some point the banker is going to say, okay, you're only buying with 10% down, you have to pay for private mortgage insurance. And then the buyer is going to say, what's that? Well, you're paying a premium just like you pay a premium to the company that insures your car. So that if the bank forecloses, on your house, and we're going to get to foreclosure a little later, and the bank takes a loss, the bank submits a claim to that insurance company and recovers the difference between what it received at the foreclosure and what its total loan payout was. So the bank's protecting itself in case uh, ultimately the uh, buyer, and now the owner, defaults on the loan. But back to the initial process, we talked about the pre-approval letter. The real estate contract also asks for a commitment letter from the lender at some point. How does that fit into the purchase? Well, that's the bank saying, no kidding, we can make this loan on these terms. That's the bank's promise to you. That's the ticket you need to ensure that you're going to be able to close because in that purchase contract, you've probably checked the box that says, I'm going to finance this house. And I'm only going to be able to close on this house if the financing comes through. If I can't finance it, I can't close. So that letter, that commitment letter, is what allows you to proceed to the closing. So what we're talking about here, uh, these provisions are contained in the standard real estate purchase agreement. And uh, just for our listeners that's never seen that agreement, it's, it's a long one. It's 16 or 17 pages, right? I don't think it's 16 or 17. I was going to guess more like 12 or 13 but right. without quibbling as to the number. It's a very good document, and here's why it's a good document. The professionals at the Columbus Realtors and the professionals at the Columbus Bar Association have worked jointly. So it has had both sales agents and lawyers look at it. It provides for just about everything that you can possibly imagine as being relevant in a purchase agreement being in that document, and it provides uh, for contingencies that you can check. It provides for situations where you can write in a certain number of days where things have to happen. I think it's a great document. 
And I, one of the things that it uh, provides that's very important is kind of a roadmap or a chronology of the purchasing uh, process, right? It so does. we talked about, for example, the pre-approval or pre-qualification letter. So in this agreement, if you looked at it, one of the first things you would do as the buyer is deliver a pre-approval letter to the seller. Right. And uh, we talked about contingencies that in the legal parlance means that that is a benchmark that if it's not met could allow somebody out of the contract or give them a legal defense. I mean, that's the kind of the legal way to look at it. But thinking about a pre-approval, if the buyer doesn't deliver a pre-approval letter within a certain amount of time, what happens under the contract? Well, now the seller can say you haven't met the contingency and we can't close. And But the parties can always renegotiate. Sure they can. So there are other contingencies in the uh, agreement. Um, there's a contingency to, again, provide the commitment letter from the lender at a certain point, correct? There's a contingency in the purchase agreement for a commitment letter. The buyer will have a certain number of days to obtain that commitment from the bank. If the buyer does not succeed in obtaining that commitment, the buyer gives notice to the seller that his financing is not coming through and the buyer is able to, in essence, rescind the contract and not move forward without any penalty. So if the buyer can't get the financing on the property, the buyer can get out of the contract. He gets out of the contract, everybody walks away. So the other contingencies in this uh, real estate purchase contract, and, and maybe the most important, are the uh, inspections and tests. Can you give us an idea of what a buyer is entitled to test for and inspect before they complete the purchase? Sure. You will almost always find a buyer checking the box for an inspection, giving himself anywhere from 10 to 20 days to complete an inspection. And that buyer has the right to inspect the house himself, although that's kind of foolish. It's really good to have a professional home inspector. So the home inspector comes through goes through the attic, goes through the basement, looks at everything he can, and uh, provides an analysis. If you want to do something beyond that, like radon testing, where you have to set some type of a testing device in the house for 24 hours, well, that's, that's a specific request. If you want to do something that's going to require some destructive testing, that's another piece of negotiation because you're going to have to promise the seller in writing that you're going to repair the drywall that you tear through to get a look at the two by fours or whatever your concern is. But in any case, at the end of that event, if the buyer feels that there are things that aren't right, the buyer has the right to say, Mr. Seller, here are six things. I'm going to ask that you either repair them or provide me with, let's say, $1,000 so that I can repair them. And then the negotiation begins. The seller can say, fine, I'll do that. They might negotiate or the seller might say, I'm not going to do that. So if you want to close, you do these things on your own. But the beauty of it is the contract gives you directions as to how that process works. Now, if the buyer goes through an inspection and let's just say termites and the electrical system and the heat, and, and can the buyer terminate the contract just because that inspection came back with a few minor problems? You know, the contract says you are to list only those things that are significant. It's not to be for minor items. Now, what's a minor item? That's the stuff that attorneys argue over. Sure. So, I, and I know you've had this situation where a buyer comes to you and says, I'm in a contract for a house. I don't really want to buy it anymore. 
And then as a lawyer, we'd say, well, have you had your inspections? And if you haven't or you're in that process, you are allowed to terminate the contract unilaterally. But listen to the language here, Jack. It is not the intention to permit the buyer to terminate the agreement for cosmetic or non-material conditions. And that word non-material is the lawyer's playground, right? Right. Yeah. So who knows what that really means? I suspect, though, that if the house had termite damage, you could legitimately say, I don't want to buy it. Even if your real reason for not buying it is you just got cold feet out of it. I think that's a correct assessment. So the inspections are important uh, not only to know that you're buying what you want to get, but also sometimes can give you an opportunity to get out of the contractual obligations. And let me repeat again. If you are buying a house and you're not having it professionally inspected, I very seldom tell people they're making a mistake, but this might qualify for that one time when I say you're making a mistake. So that uh, that answer, too, reminds me. Have you ever seen one of the inspection reports and all the disclaimers the inspectors have on their reports? Oh, yeah. But that brings us to the seller has a duty to disclose defects, right? Oh, the seller has an absolute duty to disclose what lawyers call latent defects. That is defects that are not readily visible. So there is a um, property disclosure form that's a part of the real estate contract. Can you tell us how that fits in with the, with the buying and the selling of the house? The Division of Real Estate, a state agency, has created a form and it asks you questions about the property ranging from the type of water you have, whether it's city water or well water, to defects in the plumbing system, defects in the electrical system. And you are to answer that truthfully, of course. And this is the seller. This is the seller's obligation. And the seller signs that. And that should be provided to a buyer before the buyer even makes an offer. But remember that even before that form came along, which was I'm not sure. I'm thinking it came along sometime in the late 90s. You still had that obligation to disclose things. So if the basement was leaking, but you could only discern that it was leaking during a rainstorm, you still had to disclose that to the buyer. And if you didn't, well, you were liable for the damages that buyer would suffer after buying the house. And so now it's a... uh part of the the real estate contract in the sense that it is required under the contract to have this disclosure form. And you were talking about water intrusion. So here's an example of the question. Now, this would be to the seller of the house. Do you know of any previous or current water leakage, including but not limited to any area below grade, basement, or crawl space? And you would write yes or no. Then it asks you if you've ever made any repairs in the last five years and again you'd have to answer yes or no and then there's a line that you can uh, give a little bit more of a, of a complete answer right there are and sometimes I get asked well should I disclose this should I disclose that and the guidance I generally give people is disclose everything because if people like the house the human psyche is such that people will rationalize away the problems you're telling them about. They'll say, oh, we'll deal with that. I like the house so much. But fail to disclose something and then the buyer has a problem, that buyer will be furious. So you're always better off disclosing. 
Well, and again, from the lawyer's standpoint, what we see a lot of is after a person buys a house, a couple of months go by and they find out that there's water in the basement. And they go to a lawyer because now they're upset and they want the, the seller to take responsibility for it. And the first thing we ask for is the property disclosure form, right? Right. And if on that property disclosure form there is full disclosure, then our advice to our client would probably be you don't have much of a legal case here. But if, on the other hand, there is no disclosure, it piques the lawyer's interest in the case, right? It would. And so these forms are very important to keep you out of trouble. Uh, I agree with Jack that full disclosure is best. In fact, I've had clients that have had repairs done, and we would put the receipts or copies of the the, uh, quotes or the work done along with the disclosure form so that buyer has full knowledge of what's happened to the house. So. What's interesting about this uh, form, and you and I are talking off air about it, is it's only, I don't know what to say, relevant at the time the seller signs it, correct? Yeah, the form is unusual in that it doesn't obligate you to update it after you filled it out. That I find very curious because let's take an extreme example. You did not have a problem with water intrusion when you signed the form. And two weeks later, all of a sudden, you have water intrusion. The form, the law says you don't have to update this. But if my client came to me and gave me those facts, I'd say, you better update it because I think you're going to have a terrible defense if you get sued to say, well, the water intrusion occurred after I filled out the form. The bottom line is, if you didn't disclose it, that's a violation of the law for I don't know how many years now. So it, it says here, too, and, and on this form, the purchaser, the buyers, will sign it, too. And it says, potential purchasers are advised that the owner has no obligation to update this form but may do so. So you're on notice that you may be getting uh, outdated information. But if the form isn't given to the buyer, does the buyer have some type of rights as far as the contract? Well, and again, the, the form itself answers that question in that it tells you that not providing the buyer with this form in a timely manner, that in itself can give the buyer the right to get out of the contract. So, John, if I make an offer on your house and you accept it, and then a few days later, you give me the disclosure form, that in itself gives me the right to get out of the contract. It's a beautiful thing in certain situations. It's a terrible thing from the seller's point of view. So we've been talking about defects in the property, and, and we were talking about inspections, and I think you had briefly mentioned that after the buyer is aware of, let's just say, issues with the property, the buyer can ask the seller to repair those. What's that process? Well, I would fill out, I think there's a standard form that the realtors use, but it can be handwritten for that matter, and it says, look, I found these five problems, And by the way, they're all listed on this inspection report from my home inspector. Here's his report. We think it's a thousand bucks to fix them. So we want you to fix them as a condition of closing. And from there, the seller can reject the idea altogether. He can accept the idea or or the seller can say, well, I'll meet you halfway. And I think what people need to understand is there are specific time frames to invoke those rights. There's what the contract calls is a right to remedy period. So there's a period for the inspections to be completed. 
then there's a period for the buyer to ask the seller to remedy it. And if the buyer doesn't ask for that within that time period, the buyer essentially waives any right to remedy. Right. Uh, and again, if the ask is made during the right to remedy period, the parties have to, within a certain period of time, come to an agreement or the contract is terminated, right? I agree with you. So again, the contract is the form contract is pretty complete and thorough. But it seems to me there's a lot of ways to a lot of provisions that may benefit a certain party under certain circumstances, right? Correct. And the other thing that we were talking about off air is people will ask questions about their situation and they ask questions without reading the contract. Well, it's that contract that determines how things are going to work. And even even experienced real estate agents aren't as familiar sometimes with that contract as they should be because they, they live a lot on anecdotal information as opposed to taking the time to read all those words. That ends part one. We'll be back with part two of this podcast in a couple of weeks.